Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Joe Rom. Joe, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you doing, Josh? I'm very good. Glad to have you here. And I'm going to start off with your bio. I think people are really going to like hearing it. So Joseph Rom is co-founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief of FrontPageLive.com. His latest book is How to Go Viral and Reach Millions. And CNN host Van Jones describes Joe as the communicator's communicator. He's the founding editor of ClimateProgress.org, which the New York Times columnist Tom Friedman called the indispensable blog. He is senior advisor to The Fearless Artist. In 1997, he served as acting assistant secretary of energy for energy efficiency and renewable energy, where he oversaw $1 billion in R&D and the development and the deployment of clean energy technologies. In 2009, Time Magazine named him one of its, quote, heroes of the environment, end quote, and Rolling Stone named him one of its list of 100 people who are changing America. He holds a PhD in physics from MIT and is the author of 10 books on climate change, clean energy, and communications. And I met you through, uh, you're on a panel with previous guest, James Altucher. So you have both a solid background in science and you communicate effectively and you're passionate. This combination is not so common. I know a lot of people who are very knowledgeable, they don't communicate very well. I know a lot of people who are very effective leaders, but they don't really get the science that well. And I feel like this, this is one of my main themes is there's a lot of people sharing information and saying, here's the facts. Here, look at Lake Mead. It's dropping like a historic low levels, lots of things like this, but they're not translating that into, or they'll even say, here's what you should do. Stop eating meat. But it's definitely influencing a lot of people, but the number that is not influencing is I think much, much greater. The original name of this podcast was leadership in the environment. And I feel like you get leadership, you get communication, you get the social and emotional skills. Am I reading right? Is that something that you bring that is not so common? Well, I spent a lot of time. Yeah. I mean, I, as a physicist, you're not really taught the right way to communicate. So, you know, you're, you're taught communications is about facts and charts and numbers and data. And I had to spend, you know, two decades unlearning a lot of the things that I was taught because the truth is, as, as you know, the key to communications is, is telling stories. And that's the way our minds co-developed over 100,000 years with the, with the development, you know, with the mastery of language, with storytelling. And really our brains are programmed to think in stories and to need stories and to look at the world through stories. And if you start, you know, dropping a lot of numbers on people, they just tune out. You know, all the quantitative and logical approach is, is you know, from the Enlightenment on. But for the 100,000 years before the Enlightenment and since, it's all been stories. I remember once listening to, I think it was a... Um... Sam Harris podcast, and he was lamenting that stories are more effective at influencing people than facts and figures. And I'm trying to myself square with, because you know, when, when you were saying you had to unlearn so many things, I smiled because I was like, yes, I had to unlearn all these things too. And I felt like, look, here are the facts. And I'm trying to decide if it's, if it's something to lament that stories are more effective than presenting charts and graphs and, and like the information and the facts. Or is it something to be celebrated or is it just the way things are? I mean, we're human. We're not robots. We're not Mr. Spock. It, I think it's just the way things are. I think that there is a vast sea of data from neuroscience, from marketing research, you know, what the advertisers spend their money on. All of these 
you know, have really come to deliver this one message, which is you got to tell stories. You got to connect with people emotionally. You know, I tell my story that, that I come at this through physics. I was at the Department of Energy for five years. As you said, I, I ran the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy for, for a time. And I did a lot of consulting with companies after I left the Department of Energy helping companies reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. But I didn't really get into communications and and climate communications until my brother lost his home in Hurricane Katrina. And he asked me if he should rebuild his home. And that's when I really started looking at the climate science side of things rather than just climate solutions and clean energy. And that's when I realized two things. The situation was more dire than I realized, and scientists weren't doing a good job of communicating it. So uh, I had been raised by writers. So I, I ended up stopping doing the consulting with companies and, and becoming a full-time communicator. And like I said, you know, it took 15, 20 years to unlearn what I had been taught. I, I sometimes tell the story of, of how my daughter, when she was three, started saying blah, blah, blah to me. And I I had a policy with my daughter that she, I would let her say these phrases that she had heard if she could tell me what they meant. So in other words, if she knew what she was saying. So I, I said, what does blah, blah, blah mean, Antonia? And she paused and said, it's when daddy says something that doesn't matter. <laughs> so, so she did understand what, what blah, blah, blah meant. And, and I didn't realize until I had a daughter, A, just how much, how often I said stuff that didn't matter and B that if I told her stories, then I kept her attention. And if I didn't tell her stories, I didn't keep her attention. And I, as I studied, you know, communications and storytelling, I realized that this wasn't an accident. It's not an accident that kids will watch the same, you know, Harry Potter movie 10 times in a row in, in the, over the course of a weekend and want to hear you tell the same exact story at night, you know, over and over again. That's how humans communicate. That's how we communicated for 100,000 years before the development of writing and, and beyond. So, you know, it, it was a great learning experience for me. But I also, you know, to get to your question, it just is what it is. When I talk to scientists, I say, look, the, the social science data on this is incredibly strong. You know, I talk about Dan Kahneman, the PhD in psychology who won the Nobel Prize in economics for basically helping create behavioral economics. And he said, you know, no one ever made a decision because of a number. They need a story. And, you know, it used to take a long time for me to persuade people that the facts are not what are not how people make decisions. But now I just, you know, I just point to Donald Trump and I say, you know, man, if, if, if it wasn't obvious before, I hope it's obvious now that this is not a world where people are making fact based decisions. You know, we, we live in a very strange time where people refuse to get a vaccine for a very dangerous and deadly disease because of a story that they have bought into, a story that the most of the story has nothing to do with a vaccine. You know, I don't want to get off the subject entirely, but the point is, as a matter of hard science, there is there are a few things that are should be more obvious at this point in time than that a coronavirus vaccine 
is like really, really important. And now that we have this Delta virus, and as as Anthony Fauci says, you know, over 99% of the people who have who are currently dying from COVID are the unvaccinated. You know, it's like you don't you don't get this kind of slam dunk data in science every day. And so, yeah, if scientists want to communicate effectively, want to persuade people, they're going to have to learn the what I call the ancient art and modern science of viral storytelling. I was wondering when I was when I was starting to go through this process that you just described, and I'm still in that process of of I believe I'm a better storyteller now than ever, but I'm not, you know, I'm not like the Grimm brothers or I don't know whoever, you know, historical. This American life, you, you know, one of the a great, great storytellers, the, the, yeah. the people who put that podcast together. Put yeah, those. you can see where I'm, I'm like setting up my, some role models for myself. And I wonder, should scientists learn storytelling? Should storytellers learn science? Should leaders learn, because there's a lot of leaders who you know, there's a lot of them that have something on the on climate or the environment that they think is very interesting, but it, it, the science doesn't back up that like that what they're promoting will make that much of a difference. So maybe we've got to teach leaders science. Maybe we've got to teach science leadership. Maybe we need a new class of people who know both. And because scientists, I mean, we're trained for a long time and we love nature. We love, I mean, everyone's different, but certainly I love the beauty of nature and I love to be able to find something out that no one found out before and put that out to the world. And I didn't really learn much about, you know, how to make it interesting to others because I was telling it to people who were interested in it already. And I took for granted that, you know, if I got something really big, I'd become like Einstein maybe. And then Einstein didn't, I don't think he worked on how to tell a story. And, but there's a gap as it stands now. There's a lot of people who know facts and don't know how to get it across in a meaningful way. There's a lot of people who are really good at meaning and they're not really, they don't really get the information. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I'd say a couple of things. One is, of course, it used to be that you got a well-rounded education. You know, all of the scientists whose names we remember were great writers and communicators, right? I mean, Darwin, The Origin of Species, Einstein, names like that. You know, it's really been this specialization, particularly since World War II, where we focus so much narrowly on learning one discipline really, really well. And you don't get the breadth of knowledge, the breadth of experience. I think, you know, and I, I sometimes say there, there used to be this a profession of people who were exactly the kind of people you were talking about. And we called them science journalists. And they all lost their jobs as the, uh, it became harder and harder as the media turned towards entertainment and and focusing on the political in fighting the the story of what was going on rather than the story of science it really was science journalists who for a long time acted as the intermediaries between scientists and the public and some of those people still exist but to a large extent most of them have lost their jobs and and are freelancers or or you know we see what sells on the news and it's you just watch the evening news and it's all, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. There's always, you know, what happened in an airplane, you know, what, what happened in Miami with the, when Surfside with the building that collapsed, but let's just focus on this personal stories. And I'm not against 
the media focusing on personal stories. But I do think that because the media doesn't do a very good job of communicating science to the general public anymore, it is incumbent on, on scientists to learn the art of, of communications and storytelling. So your latest book, is that geared towards scientists? The How to Go Viral and Reach Millions book is geared towards anybody who wants to become a better speaker, a better communicator, who wants to learn the secrets, the tricks of, of effective storytelling. And I talk a lot about the, the social science and neuroscience and marketing science studies, just so people understand that, that scientists understand that, that there's a basis in science in understanding that it's, they should be communicating using stories. I think of, yeah, sometimes I think of what is the story that most people are getting from scientists? I feel like the main story, and not the only one, there's lots of different stories, but it's like, you know, something really bad is happening out there and some, some really smart people figured it out and it's kind of hard to understand and every couple of years it changes and hopefully someone will figure it out. You know, we figured out a lot of things before. The best thing I can do is keep doing what I've been doing. I feel like that's the main story that Americans have. Whether it wasn't intentionally told, like, here's the story, but it, it kind of unfolded that way. And I also think that a lot of people feel like acting on the environment is a real burden. It's, it's a chore, it's deprivation, sacrifice. One of the big stories I want to, it's not a story. One of the things I want to get across is that when you actually do it, it's really joyful. You know, one of my main ways of putting it is, you know, apples don't taste as sweet as Ben and Jerry's. But after you've let go of the Ben, you know, after you haven't had Ben and Jerry's for a while, the apple actually tastes sweeter, less sugar, more sweet. And living by one's, by, at least in my experience, living by my environmental values over and over again, it feels like, oh, this is going to be really hard. And it is for a bit. And then it's much better. Like my food tastes better. I have more time because it saves money. It saves money. It connects me with my family. I guess this isn't a story. This is like the result of, I should say, the middle steps when I share these things. Do you read it that way also? I mean, because I say this because I think a lot of people don't realize that when they say, but the facts, look at them, that they're reinforcing that story. They're reinforcing this like, oh, that sounds really complicated. I don't know. It looks kind of hard. Someone, someone should fix that, but not me. Well, I do think that there are some basic things that, that need to be communicated. People need to understand that coal, burning coal, oil, and, and uh, methane gas release heat-trapping pollutants that cover the earth in what is basically a blanket. And the more you pollute, it's just like adding another blanket. And so we are heating up the planet. I, I think I think 10 years ago, it was harder to point to things. But, you know, right now, when, when Canada hits 121 degrees Fahrenheit, nearly 35 degrees Celsius, that is like, that is head exploding, you know. And in the month of June, you know, when you have these wildfire seasons that just never end, it's just it's just year round. It's not, as Arnold, you know, Governor Schwarzenegger of California said, there is no fire season anymore. It's fires all the time. You know, we see the droughts, we see the heat waves, we see the superstorms, Superstorm Sandy or, or Hurricane Maria or Hurricane Harvey dropping a once in what used to, it, it was calculated that the, that the deluge on Houston a few years ago was once in 25,000 year event. You know, but it isn't a once in 25,000 year event. It used to be mm -hmm. using old statistics. But 
uh, we are moving the curve of rare events and making them commonplace so that the heat wave that we just had in the Pacific Northwest, and now we're having another one, you know, 130 degrees in, in Death Valley, tying that t- temperature for the, uh, the hottest reliable record on Earth. Mm-hmm. You know, I think people are seeing that, that, yeah, this is real and that it's here, it's now. It's not, I think, I think part of the, what you were saying is, yes, there had been this message that climate change is sort of, its impacts are going to be distant in time and space. It's going to affect people in Africa, but it's not really going to affect us much. And it's going to be decades from now. But it isn't decades from now. It is now. And it isn't far away. It's right here at home. So I think those are important messages. And another important message, according to the science, is that over 99% of climate scientists have concluded that humans are the principal cause of, of the climate changes that we're seeing. And there is this, this very strong consensus. The, the consensus that humans are the primary cause of climate change is comparable to the consensus that you know smoking cigarettes are bad for your health. Now, there has been a massive disinformation campaign out there. So I think it's important to, to you know, acknowledge that communications that takes place on climate change doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's considerably easier for me to explain things to you in an area where there isn't a lot of disinformation. But this is an area where there's a lot of disinformation, where a lot of money is spent to specifically confuse people and spread myths and to to push the arguments in bizarre directions. And that's the world that we live in today. And, and unfortunately, there's, you know, you have to take that into account when you're communicating. So I think you, what you were describing there was like this foundation that you have to start off with, this acknowledgement. And then on top of that, then you can begin the stories. I, I think that's what you're implying. Am I right that, that, like that that's the context in which the stories are founded? Absolutely. No question about it. I think one of the things that scientists do when they communicate. They don't like to repeat themselves. So they always, you talk to a scientist and you say, well, why don't you explain that? Oh, well, everyone knows that. Or I said that once. Mm-hmm. Everyone doesn't know the most basic things. And if you were to, I'm sure you know, if you actually talk to people about like, what's the most important thing you can do to save the climate, to help the climate, they'll be like, oh, recycle plastics. Oof. Yeah. Now, recycling plastics is important. Yeah, I'm don't not your, don't not do it. Yeah. Yeah, don't not do it, but it's just not one of your top 10 things that are going to avoid what's coming, which is this uh, freight train, you know, of climate impacts that are just getting worse and worse, speeding up towards us. So, you know, yeah, it's very important to go in it, it, the hardest thing I would say about communications of climate and maybe of anything is realizing that your audience isn't where you are at. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you have to, every single time, figure out a way to, to go through some of the basics. Otherwise, you're not communicating at all because you don't have a shared uh, acceptance of facts, which is really the basis of communications. Now, you know, we, we live in a very strange world where a very large segment of the U.S. population. The United States is kind of unique in this regard because most other countries don't have, some other countries have political disagreements over climate, mostly English-speaking countries where Rupert Murdoch has media outlets Mm -hmm. like Australia or 
or the United Kingdom. But, you know, we're now in a world where a very large fraction of the American public lives in an alternative universe of facts or, you know, of, of myths, you know, a universe where Donald Trump won the election, that sort of thing, where where vaccines aren't a good idea, where climate change, you know, isn't isn't real. So that is a challenge. There's no question that, that communicating climate change in, in the U.S. Is, is probably one of the hardest things to do, to figure out how to break through the bubble that people live in. That's my, you know, it, it occurs to me that in changing how humans as a species respond to our environmental situation, American conservatives and evangelicals who won the election, the presidential election in 2016, it does, you know, it's, there's no slam dunk for 2022 or 2024, that their hearts and minds are, to my mind, that's the playing field, that they are the most powerful force, maybe Russian oligarchs or communist party officials in, in China, but I have no access to them. And how they view the world, to me, their stories are, they have tremendously influential stories. Uh, they don't, their stories don't influence me, but they're very influential for the people they influence. Uh, maybe they do influence me and I'm not aware. But that to me is like understanding their world, the world as they perceive it, and not trying to force my stories on them, but to find what for them, I mean, I think more in leadership, I have to go where the person is, not where I want them to be, where I think they should be, where I am, where other people are, but where they are, that's where I have to start. And if I come to them with, here's the science, I think to their ears, they feel like, like right off the move, right off the bat, checkmate. If I, I really have to listen a lot more and hear, you know, is it tends to be much more about freedom and patriotism. And if there's no connection between how they view the world and what I want to tell them, I have to move on to the next person. Yeah. And I don't think it's every communicator's job to convince everybody. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's realistic. I think you have to figure out who your audience is doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to persuade other people. But as you know, if, if you fundamentally don't have a shared pool of facts that you agree upon, there's really no possibility of a dialogue that leads to figuring out what we should do. Because the reality is that science works. You know, we're, we're both scientists and, you know, we, we put 12 people on the moon and we got them back. You know, and we all saw what Richard Branson did over the weekend. And I think that, you know, it is the greatest challenge for scientists to communicate to non-scientists. There's no question about it. Just and, and I think it's the great, great failing of the great scientific institutions that it's been that we spend so much time learning how to think like a scientist and communicate like a scientist, but we don't learn how to communicate to the 99.9% of people who aren't scientists. Yeah, it's really a struggle. And to me, it's frustrating looking in both directions because there are people not acting and there's people who are doing things that are actually not going to get people to act. And yet the people who, don't, who aren't acting actually do, I think, want to act. And they just don't want to feel like what they're doing is pointless. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people who have had various versions of you know, I went without straws for a week. The waiter came over and the cups had straws. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm trying to avoid them. And the waiter said, well, if I'll, I'll just throw them out. You might as well use them. And at the end of the week, they say, 
Well, there I just proved what I do doesn't matter. All I did was annoy the people around me. The world is very much the same that it was before. And see, proof, what I do doesn't matter. Or maybe they did it with going without meat for a little while or something like that. And now by contrast, when I do listen to others, I've had on this podcast, hardcore Trump supporters, hardcore evangelicals. And there's one guy, I was talking to him, so the listeners, they don't see us, but I'm talking to you and I can see you. I saw him and like behind him was this giant flag, Trump, MAGA, make America great again. And uh, as much as I went, oof, when you talked about recycling plastic, he chose to recycle plastic for the first time. He's never done anything environmental. But I first talked to him about what the environment meant to him. And he was saying, he talked about small town America and how it's starting to get, he's seeing litter all over the place. And before that, we talked about how, man, where I live in Manhattan is, I put up these videos of how disgusting are, to put it mildly, there's a lot of plastic litter around, a lot of packaging around, plastic and otherwise, and especially after parades. And so we were talking about that. And he's like, yeah, some of the big cities are really messy and the small towns are becoming like that too. He lives in Illinois. And he's like, you know what? I drink a lot of Gatorade. I'll recycle all these bottles. And he never did before. And I'm not sure how far it'll go. But when I talked to him the second time, he, he was like, yeah, I'm going to keep doing this. My girlfriend's in on it. That, this is when people actually do something from the heart, as opposed to here's one little tip. I, I can't stand this. Like, here's a little thing. I feel like they're trying to sneak something by. It's like a little coercion. But when they do it for their reasons, then it's meaningful. And they want to share it with others. And they tend to come back and say, it's usually they get closer to someone close to them, a husband, a wife, a child, a boss, a coworker. And that's actually something, it's a new story that has emerged each time. But I think it's also something separate from storytelling. It's like, is influence, leadership. I think storytelling is a major piece of, of leadership. And you know, it's, it's also entertainment, it's lots of other things. To me, it's a tool that I, one of the tools that I use also other tools of leadership as well. I didn't have a question. I was just kind of sharing that. And I want to go in two directions. There's a couple of things I wanted to ask about. I'm going to change topics a bit because you worked on years of living dangerously. Yeah. And I think of James Cameron is a tremendous storyteller. And I'm not sure if you worked with him directly. There's another friend of mine who worked on a different project with him. And was that something that, and I haven't, I've, I've watched a few episodes of it and I was very pleased to see some major names that's another thing that influences people, right? Is, is um, role models. Is our, we, you know, we do a lot of like, the people around us. And I'm kind of curious what it was like working on that project. I'm also curious if you worked with James Cameron and, and the people who created the structure of it. Yeah, I think the, the answer to your question is I got, to know, I got to know James Cameron pretty well. For those who don't know. You know oh, yeah, maybe you should say what this Yeah, uh, it's been a couple of years since this was out. You know, you can Google Years of Living Dangerously. There was an old, a movie, an old Mel Gibson movie way, way back. But Years of Living Dangerously uh, and the Years Project put together a TV series, the first season of which was on Showtime. It won the uh, Emmy for Outstanding Nonfiction Series. And then it moved to National Geographic Channel for its second season. And now it's mostly online and mostly it's videos online with, and they've had over a billion views. And basically what they have tried to do is bring, it was created by two former uh, 60 Minutes producers. So they really understand the 60 Minutes style of, which is storytelling. And I talk in, in my book, I talk about lessons that I learned from them about what makes videos go viral. And of course, at the bottom, at the end of the day, 
it, that video had better tell an emotionally compelling story. You know, they use celebrities uh, to engage people, you know, and they had David Letterman was part of the series. They had Harrison Ford, you know, Don Cheadle, you name it, you know, they had it. And, you know, I just urge people to see it because it is, it is yeah. fine. And it's free on YouTube. It's, free on YouTube there, yeah. now. And you can go to the Years Project website and you will see just world-class videos on climate that are informational, but also our stories and do engage people. And, you know, I, I think that I ha- did learn a lot about storytelling, seeing uh, them in action, a guy named Joel Bach, a guy named David Gelber, the two former 60 Minutes guys, and of course, uh, James Cameron, who I got to know a bit many years ago. What kind of things did they bring in? Because I feel like uh, oh, my first lesson in storytelling was characters, conflict, struggle, goal. I, that's like the structure that I kind of, and then details. And if I can throw in some of my vulnerability, that tends to help. But I feel like that crew is working on another level, I'm guessing. And I guess you'd get some, you'd probably learn stuff just by talking to them. Yeah, well, I think that, that it's important. If you're doing informational stuff, you have to have an every man or every woman representing the audience. You can't just be throwing facts at people. And so, you know, that's where you get people like Matt Damon or some of the best climate, Catherine Hayhoe, a great climate communicator who is an evangelical uh, Christian and, and, and speaks to both worlds. You know, a lot of it is about you have to figure out in a video how to constantly keep people's attention because people's attention span isn't large. And you have in most videos, you have like seven seconds to persuade someone that, to, to watch more than even 15 seconds worth of this video. Because everybody, it, we're all bombarded with videos and content. And uh, it's like an open fire hydrant out there. So yeah, the, t- the competition for keeping people's interest is great. And that's why, yes, you need to think through what is your story. You have to think through, as you say, conflict, struggle, the classic hero's journey story. You have to try to inject some humor in areas that are otherwise too serious. And, you know, there are other, you know, you have to figure out what is the emotional reward, what is the emotion that you're trying to generate with the video you're creating all of these things. And as always, you, you have to tell the story of a person. There's a story that, that David Gelber likes to tell about, you know, he, he wanted to do a 60 Minutes piece on, I think it was uh, sulfur dioxide, the Clean Air Act, uh, sulfur pollution, air pollution. And, and he spoke to the senior, the guy who created 60 Minutes, and he said to him, David, we don't do stories on pollution. We do stories about people who are doing something about pollution or who are affected by pollution. So it was always find the personal story. It was always find the personal story. That was why to this day, 60 Minutes, the most successful news magazine of all time, the only show to, to be a number one show in like five consecutive decades 
and still landing big, big, big interviews and big, big, big audience with their brand of uh, personal storytelling built around news and things of interest to people. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. When you describe the work and effort and detail and almost engineering that goes into making a great, great video, I'm not sure if I should go here, but I'm going to anyway. Is it, it, it feels like that's such a struggle. And there's a feeling that I get that I've talked about recently a bit that when I walk down the street and I see someone just throw a piece of litter on the ground, I think to myself, what hope do we have? They know what they're doing. It's New York City. The garbage can is never more than half a block away. Yeah. And yet, you know, certainly when I go to Washington Square Park, where right now there's a lot of drug dealers and a lot of people using heroin and stuff like that, th- these people have very little to look forward to. And why bother? But there's billions of people like this, including, you know, some of the most polluting people in the world who have tons of stuff. You know, they've got planes and mansions and so forth. And almost every day I face this, why bother? We can't do it. And every day I have my personal way of, of I think of my role models, like Mandela, who was in prison for 27 years, or, you know, I, I keep coming back to things that are outside of my control. I can't let myself get too down for those things. My measure of, of how I feel, the meaning of my life is how much I give relative to my potential. And I always conclude the best thing I can do is the best that I possibly can. And it's just not in it. I just don't see it worth it to give up. I'd rather live in a world where it isn't like this, where I would expect that the world would be cleaner for the next generation than, than my, well, actually it might be cleaner. We might've reached some points where by the time I die, we've, we've turned things around. But do you ever face this? Is it it's really hard. If we want to not just say, well, whatever happens, happens. I'm just going to live, as, do whatever I feel like, whatever will make me happy in the moment. I mean, I'm about to turn 50. I could probably, I, I might make it through before the worst happens to my communities, my physical well being. I think there's a lot of people feeling that way. Do you also face that? Do you also have to overcome that? Uh, yeah, no question about it. Look, it, it is hard in the climate arena because the problem is so vast and the change required is really significant. And the good news is, you know, and I I ran the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy and worked at the Department of Energy for years in the 1990s. So I am, we have the solutions needed to start rapidly reducing carbon pollution. We absolutely do. But the political will, uh, that's the challenge. And yeah, look, I, I live in Washington, D.C., you know, and the events of January 6th were quite, quite alarming and really showed what we are up against. So, yeah, I mean, some people would say, hey, you know, it's great to focus on climate change, but, but we, we have to fight just to preserve democracy in the United States of America. And so, yeah, I think it's easy to get disillusioned. When you understand the science, though, you realize that 
inaction is just not possible. It's, you know, the, the, the climate impacts that we're seeing now, they're just going to get worse and worse and more widespread decade by decade by decade, unless we rapidly reduce, you know, burning coal, oil and, and methane gas. So I just think as a matter of morality, we owe it to our children, our grandchildren and to future generations that we not just totally trash this this planet and cause, you know, real suffering for billions of people for decades to come. That's, I just think that's important to say that we have a moral responsibility to do what we can to avoid the catastrophes that already, I mean, they're here. I mean, we're seeing catastrophes. It's, it's people shouldn't, you know, again, climate change is not distant in time or space. It's here and it's now. And the question is, you know, how bad will individual get events be? And then how many of those events will be occurring simultaneously? And, you know, we're now at a point where we, we, we've had the West and has had three huge heat waves, you know, just in the past two months. And it's really just quite stunning. And we are reaching tipping points points of no return that also sober you up when you start to study them. So I think that uh, everyone has to figure out how they stay motivated. That is certainly a challenge. It's, it's obviously we live in an age where it's very easy to be cynical. But like I said, you know, I have a daughter. Uh, I think if you have children, then you very much want to not trash this planet. And, and you very much want to see a better future for your children. And, and that's going to take a lot of work. It is going to take a lot of work. I'm not here to say that it's, it's easy. I do think it's straightforward. I do draw that distinction. I don't, I don't think that uh, avoiding catastrophic climate change is easy, but I do think we know what needs to be done and we could do it if we chose to. And, you know, as long as we still have the possibility, I think it's, you know, that's certainly what motivates me. I'm going to throw in something that you didn't mention, but I bet you experience, and I've seen happen with a lot of my guests who act, is that it's hard. We're going to have to keep doing it for the rest of our lives. We're also going to love it when we actually do it. You know, there's certain things that are really challenging, but there's some parts of it that are just a phenomenal joy. I've gotten closer to my family. I've watched that happen countless times. I get closer to nature. I get more calm and less stressed, certainly enjoying nature. I mean, it's July now. June means June berries. And in Manhattan, I can go picking June berries. And I'm not saying this is like the biggest thing in the world, but it's, some, it's a little side effect is that I enjoy this stuff much more. I, I meet my farmers and, you know, these are all little things. I'm not saying these are like world-changing things. These are a part of what comes with working on systemic cultural change. It's joy. It's fun. It's freedom for me. And I think that's not, I don't think I'm unique in that. Is it also a joyful experience for you? I mean, it's different things for different people. Well, there are moments of joy for sure. I think that reducing pollution has so many benefits that it is rewarding to be in an area that where what you're doing can help so many people, even if a lot of those people don't think they need to be helped or they don't believe that what you're doing is helping them. So, yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, everyone has to find what motivates them. You can't go around doing something that doesn't motivate you for very long, obviously. 
So, you know, I think that we're, there are two paths. I mean, there's a path where we move towards a world where everybody is better off, or we move towards a path where most people aren't better off. And, you know, maybe the elite rich are better off for a while, but even, even the elite rich can't escape what is coming. You can't put a wall around yourself that protects you from, from climate change and from, and, and from the impacts of, on the world of climate change. I'd really like to keep this conversation going, and I hope that you'll come back a second time when and your schedule is busy, but uh, I'd love to continue this conversation. And from my personal perspective, as a scientist trained person who realized that just given the fact wasn't effective, to see, to connect with someone doing that is really gives me a lot. Um, you're a role model for me. I hope for a lot of the listeners. You have a lot of works out there. I think of climate change, whatever it needs to know, one of your books, how to go viral and reach millions. There's years of living dangerously. Any any place, well, I guess people should start with based on what their interests were, but um, any favorites of yours or any, anything else worth? If people want to know the basics, if you, want, you want to be armed with the basics, then the, the climate change, what everyone needs to know, that's part of an Oxford University Press series of books on you know what everyone needs to know about agriculture or what everyone needs to know about baseball or whatever. It's just, but this one is on climate change. So if you want, that's, that's all in Q&A format. Not political at all, about about 90 to 100 questions and answers, uh, very digestible. If someone wants to learn the ancient art of modern science, the story, viral storytelling, you know, you have the how to go viral and reach millions. If you want to see some of the best videos, yeah, go, go Google years of building dangerously or the years project and you will, you will find a vast collection of videos that will inform and entertain you on a breadth of climate issues and you know obviously be very happy to come back at some point okay great i will link to these and i'll also link to joerum.com so where everything is linked to i believe yeah well joe thank you very much and i look forward to talking again soon great look forward to talking how many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment but i call the future Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.